Lord, we thank you for your word. We know that you have given it to us to help us understand who you are, to help us understand who we are, and also to help us understand how we interact together as man and as supreme God creator of this world. And Lord, in that revelation, you remind us that you have brought a reconciler. His name is Christ Jesus. And Lord, this morning, we want to learn, we want to be taught, we want to grow. And Lord, we ask for your help, we ask for your wisdom, and Lord, we ask that you would have your way with us. Lord, what seems confusing, Lord, would you allow us to see clearly and be encouraged and strengthened by it. We ask in your precious name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I want to ask you what these following people have in common. Mark Maxson, Christine Bunch, Reuben Carter, Louis Fogel, Donald Gates, Glenn Ford, Craig Coley. All of these people have in common the fact that they are individuals who were arrested, tried, and sentenced to jail for a crime that they never committed. And all of them spent between 17 years to 34 years behind bars. In all of these cases, these individuals sat in jail without hope, without exoneration without any kind of vindication until many years had passed by and someone took some personal interest and initiative to look into the evidence. Someone did some poking around to find that their DNA didn't match the evidence or that the testimonies had actually been coerced. Now I ask you, friend, what goes through the mind of someone who knows that they're innocent, but is treated by everyone as if they are guilty? How do they cope? How do they face each new day? How do they stop from getting bitter? Do you think that and any of these people, when they found out that they were sentenced to jail, probably for a life sentence, because all of them were sent to jail for committing murder, do you think they got upset? Do you think they got angry? Do you think they sat in a room crying out to God or to anyone who would listen to them to say, I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. And certainly we would understand that. What if this were you? What would you be thinking? How would you behave? Would you seem like a crazy person to others? I mean, you know, they say everyone who is ending up in jail claims to be innocent of the crimes that they were put in jail for, right? Here you are claiming your innocence. You're crazy. You don't want to own up to the fact of the truth, but you in your heart know that you're innocent. 
Would you be emotional? Would you be angry? Would you be full of despair? Would you just give up? Friends, let me kind of walk through maybe some situations you've experienced. Take you back to your childhood and you're in school and there you are in the classroom and the teacher turns around and accuses you of something that another student did but the teacher is convinced that it's you and you were reprimanded and you were given some kind of a punishment, detention sentences or something. But what hurt was not so much the punishment, but it was the thought that you had been mischaracterized as someone that would do something. You're being found guilty of something you didn't do. And you just want a friend to come along and to say, hey, you're not guilty. It was Billy who took the apple from the table. But no one's coming to your aid. Or maybe you're at work, and you are a part of a team that works together, and there's someone on that team who has certain responsibilities, and they didn't follow through with their responsibilities, and when they put the report together, things failed in the whole putting together of the program and the process, and they implicate you as the one who was responsible and who was at fault. And you just want to scream, because you know that you are the one who was doing the work. You know you were the one who was making all the accommodations to fit into everyone's schedule. You were the one who was wanting to make sure things were done well. You spent an extra hours, but this coworker now paints you in bad light among your peers and your superiors. And it's a horrible situation, and you want vindication. You want someone to come in and say, you didn't mess it up the job. You have been falsely accused. It was your coworker. He's the one who's really guilty. But there's no one coming to your aid. And friends, that is what we find in Job chapters 9 and 10. Job has suffered much. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his family. He's lost his health. He's sitting in this ash heap. And after seven long days, he laments to God. He cries out to God. He he just wants to die is what he says. And his friends come along and they start to speak. But what they say makes things even worse. Because they are convinced that because Job is suffering, he must have done something to deserve it. That's the logic of their theological system. You sin, you suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, it must be because of sin. And so for them, the suffering is the proof that Job had sinned, and now God is punishing them. But Job knows that he's innocent. Not innocent in the sense that he's never sinned, but innocent in the sense that he's not committed the kind of sin that could result in the kind of terrible suffering that he's experienced. A total loss of fortune, a total loss of family and health without any hope in sight. Now on a side note, the writer of the story and God speak at the beginning of the story to assure us that Job is actually innocent, that what he's claiming in this chapter is actually true. 
Three times we're told he is blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. That hole is a picture of a, of a godly man, so much so that God was, was pointing him out to Satan as being this picture of a man who would honor him. So we know that Job is innocent and that his suffering is not due to his sin. Job knows that he's innocent and God knows that he's innocent, but his friends don't think that he's innocent and that God continues to be silent. And Job just wants God to say something to vindicate him. He simply wants God to declare to his friends, Job is innocent. But God continues to be silent. So Job now, his mood moves from anger to despair. And so this morning, as we look at this text, we see the struggle of despair, the struggle of a person who is in despair to find hope and vindication when it seems like the world is against you. Now these two chapters can be understood in three sections, each having a question. The first section you see there in your handout, how can a man be right before God? And the question is right at the beginning of that section, verses 1 through 13. If you go to verse 14, you'll see the second question there. How can I face God in court? This whole section has a courtroom scene backdrop to it. The language in it is all about the courtroom. The third question is not so dominant in the text. It's chapter 10 in, in its entirety, but it comes to bear in verse 18 where, where he's simply saying, I want to die. Leave me alone. So this morning, let us consider this despair. Let's consider how, how this despair is looking for hope. It's looking for vindication when it seems like the whole world is against you. Now let's look now at this first section that I'm saying is answering this question, how can a man be right before God? In this section, Job acknowledges that much of what Bildad, the person who had just spoken, his friend, has said is right. And we're actually surprised. We're expecting Job to come back and just start, boom, pummeling Bildad with just kind of saying, you're wrong here and you're wrong here and you're wrong here, because he's done that before. He actually begins by saying, yeah, you know what? You are right, but that's as it relates to the character of God. He is a just God. He is not a God that perverts what is right. That's what Job is affirming. But Job cannot see how any man can go before God and be found right. God is too magnificent. He's too powerful. There's no way that I could contend with him, he's saying. And so with one question to God, God would come back with a thousand questions. And Job would not be able to answer him once. That's just kind of the sense of these 13 chapters. But let's look at them a little closer here. Again, this is a courtroom scene. And notice verse 2 through verse 3. He says, truly I know that it is so, in reference to what Bildad has just said. But how can a man be in the right before God. 
How can a man be in right standing before God? If one wished to contend with him, again, courtroom language here, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart. He's mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? God is too wise. He's too powerful. And he elaborates on that now in these next few verses. He first of all identifies God as being invincible. Verses 5 through 10 are just full of statements about God's power. He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger. Who, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. This is God. This is a God who can do that. He can remove mountains. He can shake the earth. He can, he can shake pillars. He commands the sun. And who is it that commands the sun? And it does not rise. I mean, he, he stops the sun from rising. He seals up the stars. This is darkness. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Who goes, who, sorry, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? He's talking about God being a God of creation, but also being powerful as a God of disorder. If these things are true, and they are, how can I, Job is saying, make any impression on God because he is so lofty? God is powerful. Certainly that is true. But is he good? So God is invincible. Secondly, God is invisible. Verse 11. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. The idea is that God is invisible, but he's elusive. He comes in, he comes out. He, has, he works his wonders on me, and that is not necessarily a positive thing. He works his, his power, his, his will on me. He comes and goes, and I don't even see him moving. Then he's unaccountable. Verse 12, behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, hey, what are you doing over there? Why? Because he's not accountable to you. He's not accountable to anyone. He's God. Before the mightiness of God, Job can only fear or feel despair. God is his own authority. And then God is unrestrainable. Verse 13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Now this is not referring to Rahab the harlot from the book of Joshua. This is referring to Rahab the dragon. And Rahab the dragon was a mythical female monster of the ocean in ancient pagan literature. And what Job is saying is that God is so mighty that when he determines to carry out his punishment, no one can turn him back. He is unrestrainable. If he's determined to do something, he is going to do it. So if the mighty dragon Rahab could not stand before God, what hope is there for little old Job in the face of God in court? God is too wise. He's too powerful. How can a man 
be right before God. That's his struggle. And then we move into the next section. How can I face God in court? In this section we see Job having concluded that he is a man that cannot contend with God and so he feels trapped. He knows that he's innocent but just wants God to come to his aid and vindicate him by saying, Job is innocent, he's not guilty. But there's only silence. So Job is frustrated and he's only left with few options. And so we begin by now looking at this frustration that Job has. He feels trapped. He's been insisting that he's innocent. But again, no one is willing to listen to him. No one is willing to take him seriously. On one side, he has his friends. And they conclude, as we've already determined, that he is not innocent, that he is guilty. His punishment is proof of that. On the other side, he has God, who knows that he's innocent, but is silent. What Job is seeking, and what he wants God to do, is to to vindicate him in the courtroom. And so he wants to take God to court, not because he wants to accuse God and find God guilty. He wants to go to court so that the truth can come out and he can be vindicated among his peers. So he's trapped, first of all, by his words, thinking that he would not be able to utter anything coherent. That's what his words uh, would, would do. They would come back to haunt him. Look at verses 14 and 15. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, in other words, though I'm blameless, though I'm innocent, I cannot answer him. I must appeal to mercy to my accuser. Job knows that he's in the right, that he's innocent, but there's nothing that he can say that will make any difference. All he can hope to do is to throw himself on the mercy of God. He's pleading for mercy here. So he's trapped with his words, but he's also trapped by his view of God, whom he believes doesn't actually care. Why would he listen to my voice? Verse 16 through 18. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Why? For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. God's not willing to listen to me. He's just tormenting me, and it's just an onslaught of torment. How can Job contend with God? And he gives us three kind of things that that help us, or helps his argument. He says, first of all, God is too strong, verse 19. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. He's the one who's strong. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? God is totally just. I'm not. I would come out as a fool, he says. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. And you can just sense what Job is experiencing here. He is coming into the presence of God. He's coming into the courtroom, and it's Job 
on one side and it's God on the other side. Now, friends, if that doesn't strike you as kind of like, this is a lose situation for Job, it should. Why? Because we're talking about the created being and the creator. (laughs) This is man and this is God. And maybe in our culture, we have diminished the impact and the power and the magnitude of God so much that we think, you know what? He's not that much higher. (laughs) He's not that much greater. But Job is realizing and he recognizes what is true. He's like, yes, he is. How in the world can I speak when the one who is the creator of the world, when the one who is holiness is before me? Even what I say is going to come out sinful. Job knows the truth of God, but he's vacillating between his confidence of meeting God in court and seeking vindication and meeting God in court and being found guilty of sin. In other words, he recognizes that he is a sinner, and if he comes before God, and he's like, there is no sin that has caused this calamity to come on me, but because I'm in the presence of God, my life is fully exposed, and there is plenty of sin for God to point out. Now, hear this. Think about this, right? How many of you have ever been stopped by the police, traffic, you know, driving? And, And maybe there's a time, maybe, I know this is, you know, every time you're stopped, you are completely innocent. I totally understand that, right? Officer, I wasn't driving 85 miles an hour in the 25-mile-hour zone. Um, no, he stops, and he says, you know, you were driving too fast, and you're, 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 in your mind, you're like, how can I get out of this? I want, I want to plead my innocence. But part of you is also saying, yeah, you know what? There are plenty of times that I was driving over the speed limit before, and I was never caught. And in our society, if you now were held responsible for all those other times that you were never caught, if that police officer somehow coming in your presence now could see all that, that would be unjust. It's only the thing right now. So what Job is saying, that even the one thing that that at least my friends are saying is the sin that now has caused this calamity, if I went before God and I pleaded my case, God knows everything about me. I would be totally and completely exposed to him, and he would find fault. Who am I? How can I, how can I even come to God and stand before him and plead my case? So now Job is in greater despair. He wants vindication from God, for God to say, hey everybody, Job is blameless, but he knows it's not gonna happen. So Job begins to unravel. Verse 21, I am blameless, I regard not myself I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. His despair now leads him to a place where he concludes wrongly about how God interacts with mankind. It's not the same. It's not like, okay, those who are believers and those who are unbelievers, God deals with them in just the same way. No, Job is mistaken. He fails to comprehend that even in death, God keeps a hold of his own people. Let's read on and see what he says. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. 
He covers the faces of its judges if it's not he who then is it. In other words, the, the, the innocent are condemned. The wicked now get freedom. Verse 25, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. It's just happening all so fast. Now, friends, this is what the pain of suffering can do to a person. Please, please hear this. In their grief, they are robbed of their assurance. In their torment, they can often reason irrationally and contrary to what they actually know to be true. Suffering, trial, and torment can do that even to the best of God's children. And it's a lesson that we all need to bear in mind when we minister to the sick and to the hurting. In our times of deepest pain, when we say things that border on blasphemy, and if we haven't said them out loud, we have certainly thought them in our hearts. We're like the psalmist in Psalm 77. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 77. I want you to see this. The psalmist here is crying out to God because of something. We're not told specifically what it is has happened to him. But I want you to notice in verse three how he responds. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Look, he's doing the right thing. He's going to God, but what's happening? There's no resolve. There's no answer. In fact, I'm moaning. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years of long ago. I, I said, let's remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. I mean, he's doing all the right things. Then my spirit made a diligent search. And here are the questions. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ever, forever ceased? His, his covenant love, has it ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? But what is he doing here? This is the heart of someone who's struggling with life and pain and suffering and trial. And that can get you to the place where you're asking a lot of questions and you're questioning the things that you have held dear. Friends, we need to be mindful that suffering brings about this kind of struggle and not to go in with guns blazing because people don't have their theology exactly right in the midst of suffering. We minister the word of God. We encourage people. We help them. We hold them or we, we are sounding boards for them. So Job is saying, you know what? I'm frustrated, but he now is left with some options. Now, what are the options that are left before him? Well, the first op option we find in verse 27. 
He says, if I say, I will forget my complaint. I will put off my sad face. I'll be of good cheer. In other words, he's saying, I can just pretend. I can just pretend that it's, it's all over. It's done. I can put on a happy face, put on a happy face. Pretend everything's fine. But if I do that, if I just move on, if I just cheer up, if I just look forward to a new day, what happens is this, this root issue, which is not the loss of family and friends and possessions, the root issue is his standing before God. The root issue is his innocence, that, that God is judging him for sin that he's committed, and he cannot just pass that over. He wants vindication. If he, if he pretends that it's just human suffering, he will be in denial of the true nature of his innocence. And so verse 28, I become afraid of all my sufferings, for I know you will not hold me innocent. See, if I just pretend it's not true, then I'm just giving credence to the fact that I am guilty. I shall be condemned, verse 29. Why then do I labor in vain? So in other words, it's pointless pretending and putting on a good face. It will not do. Second option. I can perform a ritual. Look at verse 30. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye. Yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. Listen, this is how people think, you know? Going through trial, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna barrel with it. I'm just gonna put on a happy face. I'm not gonna let people know what's going on in my life, and that's one way. Or I can say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to ritualism. I can seek to be cleansed. What he's saying here is an echo of David's words of repentance in Psalm 51, verse 7, where it says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Friends, I, I, I realize that, that snow is beautiful, but snow doesn't actually cleanse. What does snow do? It takes what is nasty and horrible and dirty, and it just covers it. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor, Right? And the metaphor is, right, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. It's the, it's the metaphor of saying, I, I want cleansing, and it can come, and it can come through ritual. But Job is convinced that however clean he may be, God is going to prove him dirty. Did you catch verse 21? Yet you will plunge me into a pit. And my own clothes will abhor me. In other words, all right, you think you're, go ahead. Go ahead and cleanse yourself. Go through the ritualism. Sure, go do that. And God will just pick me up, and he'll dump me into a pit where it's all muddy, and I'll be covered with mud again. This is his view of God right now. This is what he's struggling with. If I, if I then perform a ritual, it just simply will not do. But there is another option, and it's the third option. And we find it in verse 32. He says, for he, talking about God, is not a man as I am. So he recognizes now. There's this, there's this motif that we have through this whole section. This motif of man and God. He says, for he is not a man as I am, that I might 
answer him, that we should come to trial together. So he's saying, I could take God to court, but what good would that do? He's not like me. I'm a man. He's God. And how could I speak to God? And he's saying, what I need, verse 33, is an arbiter between us. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He's looking for an arbiter who will speak for both of them, who will be trusted by both of them, who will have compassion for him and will represent also God and for his holiness. So there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, talking about the arbiter and and his presence there, and let him not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak. Speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. This arbiter is also referred to as a mediator. A mediator is one who is a go-between, who brings together parties who are not in communication with each other, who may be alienated or estranged or at war with one another, and that mediator has links to both sides in order to identify with and maintain the interests of both sides and represent each other to each other for goodwill. The role of the mediator. And so Job is saying, having a mediator would mean that I could approach God with more confidence. I could approach him without worrying about his magnificence. I could speak to him without fear of him. So my options are, I can pretend, I can perform a ritual, I can find a mediator, but I can't find a mediator. And so later in this book, as things unfold, Job will recognize and celebrate this mediator, Job 19, where he says this classic text, I know that my Redeemer lives. But Job is not there yet. And friends, this is, again, this is the wrestling match. Job can't see the mediator. He can't comprehend who it might be. Now certainly Job understands the idea of a mediator taking away sins and keeping his family right in right standing with God. We see that at the beginning of the book. Again, you think about why these things are there laid out for us. Job understands the role of sacrifice in keeping the relationship of he and his family right with God. So he understands the concept of a mediator. But what Job is looking for now is not a mediator to take away sins, but one who would vindicate him and show that Job is truly blameless. But he doesn't find one. And so what we have now as we move to chapter 10 is a picture of a man in anguish and in despair trying to relate to God without a mediator. He's concluded that the only way he can stand before God and say anything that, is, that he needed uh, He needed uh, a mediator between him and God, but since there is no arbiter or mediator present, who will stand in the gap and help bring about his vindication? So now he descends into further hopelessness and despair. And now his despair drives him to ask some further questions, four agonizing questions for God. 
Question number one, why are you against me? Now notice the beginning here, verse one and two in particular. He basically says, I loathe my life and I will give free utterance to my complaint. This is what happened before. He's like, listen, I've, 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 I've thought about this enough. Now I'm just going to speak freely. I'm just going to talk. I'm going to, in a sense, lash out with questions to God. I will say to God, verse 2, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. He says, does God, or does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hand and favor the designs of the wicked? It's clear to Job that God is against him, but he cannot understand why. Why would you create me, the work of your hands, and then favor the designs of the wicked? Second question. Why do you watch me? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man? Are your years as man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although that you know that I am not guilty? and there is none to deliver out of your hand. I mean, are you seeing how many times Job is saying in these chapters, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty? So in response to Eliphaz, Job accused God of being a hostile surveillance watcher, kind of like Big Brother in George Orwell's 1984. God is portrayed here as one who is not human. His eyes See not just the exterior, he sees into Job's heart. And God can look deep into his soul and know that Job is not guilty. He has the power to deliver Job by vindicating him, by declaring his innocence, but he doesn't. And then we have another question. Why did you create me? Your hands have fashioned me, verse 8. And now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and now uh, will you return me to the dust. So in these verses, Joe comes back to the topic of being the work of your hands. It is at the same time a beautiful text as well as a pathetic passage. Beautiful because of the description that we have here of God's creation of man reflecting back to what God did with Adam in Genesis 2-7. God's hands fashioned and made me. You have made me like clay. But it's also pathetic because of Job's lament that God has created him only to destroy him. And now Job speaks poetically about his conception, about his formation and his birth. Verses 10 and 11. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese. That's imagery talking about conception. You clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. So as one of God's creation, Job has been blessed with God's providential um, preservation and care that is the fruit of his said his steadfast love. We've seen that before. That's verse 12. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. He, these are all things that have happened in Job's past. God created him. He sustained him. He was providentially over him. His said love carried him through. But that all now turns on a dime because now of his present circumstances, he sees God in a different light. He sees him as cruel. 
Look at verse 13. Yet these things you did in your heart. I know this was your purpose. See, he's struggling. God, why are you silent? Why are you doing these things? Why are these things happening? The cruelty is fleshed out even more with Job's descriptions in verses 14 through 16. If I sin, you watch me and you do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm guilty, woe to me. I have no hope. Even if I'm in the right, if I'm a genuine believer, I cannot lift up my head with dignity. My suffering communicates to the world that I am a vile, guilty sinner. I am disgraced before all. Even if I were to lift up my head, you would hunt me down like a lion. Doesn't it shock you, this language here? But this is the language of despair. This is the language of crying out to God and, and not finding any answers and, and turning in your sense on, on your own thinking about what God must be doing and what God is like. Now in verse 17, we get to the climax of Job's words. He accuses God of doing three things. God renews his witness against Job. He renews it. That's what he's saying. Uh, fresh witnesses, fresh accus accusations. He's increasing his vexation towards him. In other words, more trouble, more difficulty. You bring fresh troops against me. You've seen probably the movies of, of people in these, these magnificent battles that are happening in castles and the armies are coming and you know there's this big champion in front and he, he's hacked down 10 people already, but there's 100 people behind him. That's what Job is thinking. I have been working hard trying to figure this out and every time I, I conquer something, there's another person there who's coming against me. It's endless. It's hopeless. And it's ongoing. And the final question is, why don't you just let me die? Look at verse 18. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before an eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Now friends, hear this. People do desire to escape from this world and the suffering they're going through by ending it. And rather than just saying, snap out of it, we, we, we need to, to minister if people are like that. They're crying out. There's reasons for their crying out. Job is at that place. He says, are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I might find a little cheer. I mean, just being left alone for a bit will just give me some kind of comfort before I go into the place of darkness. You get the language here at the end? Darkness, deep shadow, gloom, thick darkness, deep shadow with any or without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. So Job, in his despair, returns to where he was in chapter 3, lamenting that he would be left alone, that he would have just died before birth, at birth, Soon after birth, this world of suffering is too much for him. So now we must remember something. First of all, that Job is a genuine believer. This is a genuine believer who's wrestling this way. Secondly, well, this goes with the first one. He, he, refu he refuses to curse God and die, right? Secondly, he truly struggles with what he doesn't understand, <laughs> He doesn't understand. 
He, he has his theology, but he's trying to wrestle with the circumstances and the silence and trying to cope and, and make sense of it. He knows. He knows that he's innocent. He knows that God is just. And he knows that other people are wrongly condemning him. And he's in despair. So what Job needs and longs for is someone whom he and God can trust to mediate between them. Someone who understands what it means to suffer unjustly. Someone who will speak to God as a mediator and an advocate for Job and for the purpose of reconciliation. And with that reconciliation, bring vindication. Now friends, Job didn't have all the story as we heard this morning as we're reading there in Exodus 12, they didn't have all the story, but we do. And we recognize that there is a mediator. And let's just think through that a little bit here. First of all, there are mediators in the Old Testament. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I'll kind of give you a, a big picture of what that looks like. You have people who mediated, prophets, priests and kings. The prophets bring the word of God to the people. You have priests who represent the people before God. You have kings who represent God by bringing uh, order and bringing God's rule to bear. Then you have covenants. Covenants are a, a means of mediation that bring God's word to the people through a promise, through a blessing. And so people hang on to those promises, hang on to those covenants. Then you have the tabernacle or the temple that brings God's presence to the people. So the, the priest would go in and mediate between God, but that, that temple, that, that tabernacle was that place of meeting. And then we have animal sacrifices, which we've seen. Job understands that. He's doing that with his children before all this happened. And this brings God's forgiveness to the people. Right, so, so the Old Testament is full of these means of, of mediation, but all of them are pointing to one person. <laughs> all of them are pre preparing us in the New Testament for the coming of one whose name is Jesus Christ. He is our mediator, and there's a few verses that help us understand what that looks like. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. You can't say it any clearer than this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So you have Job, or you have you, and you have God over here, and how is it that a man can be right before God? It is through the mediator. It is through Jesus Christ. And he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So his mediator role listed here is the fact that he is a ransom. He is a payment. He is a one who redeems people. Again, goes back to Job. I know that my redeemer lives. Why? That he's a mediator who stands in the gap for me. Secondly, turn to or watch Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. I will make a quick note here that Hebrews 8, 6 and 9, 15 and 12, 24 all identify Jesus Christ who is the mediator of the new covenant. And the new covenant is that reality of Jesus Christ going to the cross, being that sacrifice once for all, providing the way of reconciliation through his death on that cross, which we will celebrate with the Lord's Supper here. 
But Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15, tells us this. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. In every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help. When? In our time of need. Job was in a time of need. And one of the things he said is, is maybe if I go to God, the best I can ask for is that he would grant me what? Mercy. But he's not confident to go straight to God. Why? Because he's like, I need a mediator. You see how this is all kind of coming together here? We have the answer. It is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he sympathizes with us. He understands what you and I have been going through. And in our time of need, we can come to him with confidence and we will find both mercy and grace. And then, of course, the passage you know we always often say, quote, when we're doing Lord's Supper. But this is, this is why, because it fits right into this whole concept of mediation. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, and he says in this passage, because there's this kind of dispute between him and other brothers, but he's using this as a basis now for this reconciliation between them. He says, for our sake, he, that's the Father, made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, friends, Job was looking for a mediator, but he couldn't find one. We need a mediator, and he's staring us in the face. So, Job, how can a man be right before God? Through Jesus Christ, the mediator. How can I take God to court? I can boldly and with confidence approach the throne of grace through Jesus Christ, my mediator. Job, why were you born? To bring glory to God and to have the joy of eternal fellowship with the family of God. Friends, this is wonderful stuff. Job could not comprehend this mediator yet, the thickness of what he was going through. But he knows that he needs one. Now I want to just finish with a few concluding thoughts here, just three that I think flow out of this that are important for us to recognize. Number one, what really, really matters, friends, is not what society thinks about you, what your friends think about you, what other people perceive about you. What matters is what God thinks about you. Certainly, we have responsibilities to be good examples to others, to guide them to the truth and to not be a stumbling block, but ultimately what matters is what, not what other people think about you, but what God thinks about you. It's better to be standing right with God than to have your health, your wealth, or even your family. Just ponder that. Secondly, what does Jesus say? 
Well, there's a lot that Jesus says. I realize that. I want to take you to one passage. That would be Matthew 11, 28 through 30. You know it well. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. You think Job was heavy laden? <laughs> and I will give you what? Rest. Now, what is that talking about? That's not just, oh, you get to sleep for a couple of days. The whole concept of rest is to finally be reconciled with God. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So to find rest in Jesus is to be forgiven, it's to find understanding, and it's to have an advocate and a mediator. So Jesus says, when you are reconciled, you are forgiven. Those words are not small words. Those words have deep, full meaning for you and for me. And leads us then to this last statement, and that is this. What must we do? We must repent, and that could be I would say the repentance that, that is the, the, the means of conversion, but even as believers, we continue to repent of our sin. But second to that, we must believe. What does that mean? That we believe that what Jesus said in our reconciliation is still true, even though we fall flat on our face in sin. You are forgiven. Boom, fall flat on your face in sin. Guess what? A righteous man does what? Gets up 70 times. That's a picture to say they're gonna get up when they fall in sin and they're gonna continue to get up when they fall in sin. Why? Because they believe what God says is true. And the third part here is this, we must keep on believing. Even in the midst of our trouble, even in the midst of our difficulty, our suffering, there is this temptation to give up and we must have compassion with people who are sorting through all that. That's part of the, the, one of the underlying themes of this book. But at the same time, we must keep on believing what we have believed to be true in spite of our circumstances. And so, friends, I just want to leave you with this one particular thought. And I think this is really important for us. In the middle of our suffering, often the greatest battle we face is the battle against unbelief. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your mediator? Do you believe that he is your advocate before the Father and the sin that you commit today has actually fully, completely been satisfied by his death on the cross? Do you believe that? Or are you so consumed with your sin that you can no longer believe that what God says is actually true? You're fighting against unbelief to believe what is true. And friends, this is the battle that rages for us. And sometimes Satan wants to come along and chip away at our belief. He wants us to embrace things. He wants us to go the, the route of just kind of putting on a good face. And that can... You can do that in the context of the body of Christ. You maybe are struggling today and someone came up to you and said, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, it's great, man. I had a great week. It's good. How are you? Because I don't want to talk about me in case it spills out. 
Or you go through, I am at church. I'm doing the things, God, you want me to do so that I can be right with you. I'm going through this ritual, cleansing. No, what you need is Christ. Who you need is Christ. He is your mediator. That is who Job needs. That is who we need. So the heart and the cry of despair is for a mediator who will vindicate us. Now, we're not vindicated in the sense of our mediator says, you haven't sinned. We're mediated in the sense that the mediator says, you have sinned, but I've taken your punishment. You are no longer guilty because of the blood of Jesus Christ who removes that sin. My friends, we are going to celebrate the Lord's table here this morning. And there's a reason why God has established that. Because we need to be reminded of the fullness of this truth. That we have a mediator whose name is Jesus who went to a cross, gave his body, shed his blood in a bloody sacrifice that was that payment once for all to pay for your sin. He was sinless, but he took your sin. He didn't deserve it, but he took it upon himself willingly out of love for you and for me. If you are a child of God this morning, we welcome you to join with us as we celebrate the Lord's table. And as we do, may we rest in this wonderful truth that we have a mediator whose name is Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for for this book of Job that reveals to us, our hearts, our struggle. And yet, Lord, even as we read Job, we see Job is somewhat handicapped with things that we know that he doesn't. So, Lord, there is a sense in which that we have far more revelation and understanding of, of, of what it means to be able to stand before you. Oh, Lord, we could not do it alone. You are too holy, too magnificent, too powerful, too wise. And Lord, we would be undone. And yet, it is your son, Jesus Christ, who stands between us and thereby gives us the freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace, to to pour out our hearts in anguish and, and the struggle that we're feeling and facing and, and the, the heartache and the, the lack of understanding and yet, Lord, you desire that. You want to hear that from your people because you want to encourage and strengthen them in the midst of their struggle but Lord, also with the hope of eternity. We who are your children have been welcomed into your family. We long to sit at the table with you in heaven now, Lord, we are going to sit at the table with you, with God's people here on earth, celebrating what you've done, but also looking ahead to that wonderful, eternal gathering that we will have in heaven. Lord, this world is not our home. We are just passing through, and yet you've given us a life to live here and to do it for your glory in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle. Give us a fresh vigor, purpose, passion.
passion, Lord, to live for you. Even when we don't understand everything, we desperately need you, Lord. In your name.